take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 42. Uh, we've completed our series devoted to God on sanctification, and uh, while that's our emphasis this year as a church, as we seek to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we're going to take a little bit of break between uh, now and our next series for maybe about a month. Uh, as I said, um, Adam is going to be preaching next week, and then we come into Palm Sunday and Easter, and rather than starting a new series today, I just decided, in light of our Sunday school class, that I might just work through a couple of psalms uh, in this interim time before we begin to look at Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, today we'll be looking at Psalm 42 and 43, so please listen now as we read from God's Word. To the choir master, a mesquil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festal. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waters. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and that night excuse me, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of, of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are, you, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and de defend my cause against an ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we're so thankful for the word that you have given to us. And just that you have given us such free access to your word. But Lord, just because we have access doesn't mean we read it. And just because we read it doesn't mean we listen and respond in faith. But we pray this morning that your spirit would so work in us, God, that we would do that. And that, Lord, we would not only receive it by faith, but, but that you would use your word to produce a fruit, a harvest, 
to your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we live in a time where anxiety, despair, discouragement seem to be on the rise, do we not? Uh, I was reading this week, uh, not just in our own country, but even in other countries, about how anxious people are. In, in an article that I read that was written in 2020, uh, it was talking about anxiety in the workplace. And it said 50% of millennials, okay? Millennials are roughly between the age of 23 and 40. Um, that 50% uh, of millennials have left the job at least partly due to mental issues like anxiety or worry or depression or things like that. And, and for Gen Xers, which is the next generation that's younger, right, especially between 18 and 23-year-olds, that percentage jumps up to 75%. But as we think about this, this isn't just an issue that, that plagues young people. Even people who are in their golden years of life with increasing health issues, uh, they're struggling more and more as they're losing control of their lives and their adult children are caring for them and making decisions for them. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry and even depression for people in that age group as well. And then for those who are sort of middle-aged, uh, they are known as what's called the sandwich generation because they have the responsibility of caring for their aging parents, but they also, many of them, are also caring for their own adult children as well. So they have responsibility sort of on both sides. That's why the sandwich that they're talking about. And, and while we want to think of anxiety and worry and discouragement and despair and depression uh, as being unique to our time, the reality is that's just part of the human experience, is it not? It has been, even in years past. You know, we oftentimes think of this as a, as a new thing, maybe. But Reverend Martin Lloyd-Jones, back in 1965, wrote a very well-known book on depression. And, and it's sold because Christians struggle with depression. Back in the 1800s, uh, Spurgeon, Reverend Spurgeon, right? Charles Spurgeon? Uh, you know, he not only wrote on the topic of depression, but he struggled with depression himself from time to time. And William Bridges, back in 1649, wrote a book entitled A Lifting Up for the Downcast. It was a 287-page book on Psalm 4211 alone. Just on one verse. Don't ever complain about my sermon. Don't my sermon, okay? Uh, but, you know, the reality is we all get depressed and discouraged from time to time, thinking that God has forgotten us. Writers of old used to call this the dark night of the soul. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? If you've ever been discouraged, if you've ever worried, if you've ever been depressed, that's just a great description for what you go through, the dark night of the soul. And no wonder Psalm 42 and 43 are often so dear to, to many Christians. So I want to look at these psalms today, but before we get into the content of it, I want to, you know, we've been doing this class on psalms, so we've got to look at, you know, the structure and all these other things too as well. So let me give you a little bit of background on Psalm 42 and 43. 
Psalm 42 begins book two of the Psalms. If you've been coming to the Sunday school class, you know that there's five, the Psalter is made up of five books. And this is the first one of the second book. Okay, and uh, it deals with the topic of a commitment to, the, to God's kingdom. A commitment to God's kingdom. And, uh, and these two Psalms fit together. That's why we're, we're dealing with both of them. Uh, as if they're a single psalm. Because actually, in some of the Hebrew texts, and some of the Hebrew manuscripts, these two psalms are written as one psalm. And, and part of that is, is if you look at Psalm 42, it, it has a title to the choir master, right? And so on and so forth. But if you look at Psalm 43, it has no headings like the other psalms in, in Book 2. And so it's oftentimes believed that that fits together. But... I would suggest to you that the most convincing evidence for this is the structure of both of these psalms when you put them together. That they really create one poem or one song that has three stanzas, okay, with, with a refrain at the end of each stanza, okay? Look at uh, 42 verses 1 through 5, that's one stanza. Then the second half of chapter 42 verses 6 through 11 is the next stanza, and then all of chapter 43 is the third stanza, okay? And, and then the refrain is verses 5, 11, and then verse 5 of chapter 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. That's uh, Psalm 42, 5. But if you look at verse 11, it repeats the exact same thing. It just adds on a phrase at the end, uh, my salvation and my God. And then 43.5 adds that phrase, and my God as well. So there's this refrain that, that is given there. So I really think that this needs to be dealt with together as we, we look at this. Now, as we think about the sons of Korah, I don't know about you, but that causes me great problems because I know enough about the Bible to know that Korah and his family died, right? <laughs> if, if you look back at Numbers 16, uh, you'll be reminded that Korah led a rebellion against Moses, right? And he got others to join him in this rebellion. And it talks about how the Lord opened the mouth of the earth, right? And Korah... And, uh, and along with their households was, was, and all their goods was devoured. And then there were 250 men who took up the, um, the incense that, that they were not um, qualified to do so. And the Lord struck them with fire and killed them as well. So that's number 16. Well, if you look over at Numbers 26, though, beginning with verse 9, Numbers 26, 9, this is what we read. These are the, are the Dathan and the uh, Ibram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. And when they contended against the Lord, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. Then or excuse me, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. And then it says in verse 11, but the sons of Korah did not die. The Lord spared them. The Lord showed his mercy to them. 
And then God raised them up to serve in the tabernacle and in the temple. They did various things. They were gatekeepers, but they were also writers of songs. They produced and they performed music to the praise of God. And how appropriate is that, right? Because they had received God's great mercy. They should have been destroyed, but they weren't. And so instead, they, they served in the house of the Lord joyfully, uh, thanking God for His mercy. Now, the Psalms of the sons of Korah are just as personal as David's Psalms, okay? You can, you can just, you can just uh, uh, sense the personal nature as you read through Psalm 42 and 43. But where they're different is, is they're not quite as individual. In other words, with David's uh, Psalms, many of those are tied to specific circumstances. And sometimes the headings in our Bibles will tell us what those circumstances are. Whereas the sons of Korah are not usually tied to a specific circumstance. And that's the case in this psalm. So, you know, who is writing this? We don't know. What's their exact circumstances? We don't know, you know, what that is. Um, you know, some people want to, to guess that this was about the sons of Korah because it was written by the sons of Korah. And since they were used to serving in the temple, that they were now separated from the temple and they were in discouragement and despair because they were separated from the presence of God. Other people like Spurgeon think that it's about David when he was driven from Jerusalem by his son Absalom. And so David now is heart sick and, and, and wants to and desires communion with God in the tabernacle. We don't know what the specific circumstances are, but regardless, we see a person who is struggling with discouragement in the midst of his life of faith. And, and interestingly, God thought it necessary to give the church a song for times like this. Have you ever thought about that? If you think about all the times that we've struggled with discouragement and despair and worry, and yet God knows that. And he said, let me give you a song that you can sing, that you can think about, that you can meditate upon uh, when you find yourself in those, in those times. Praise be to God for his great foresight in that. So let us consider this morning this psalm. And, and really, there's just two points. First of all, I want to look at the downcast soul. The downcast soul. And then I want us to look at the upward look. Okay, it's really just the two parts of the title to the sermon. Okay, first of all, the downcast soul. So you can say, well, Pastor Rick, why do we have to look at this? You just said that we all understand what this is like. We've all experienced this. So why do we need to do this? Why do we need to look at this? Why did God include this in his word to, to help us to, to, to see the reality of discouragement and depression in a person's life and some of the contributing causes? Why is that so necessary? And it's necessary for this reason. Because if God had just given it to us and given us sort of the upward look and what we should do when we find ourselves in those times, we would go around trying to fix each other. <laughs> we already do that anyway, right? But I don't know about you, but when I have been in those dark hours, right, of the night, of the, um, those dark hours of the soul, the last thing I want is somebody to come fix me. What I want is somebody who understands the struggle that I'm going through. Somebody who can 
Help me to see that God understands the struggle that I'm going through. And so it's important that we, first of all, see the downcast soul and to understand that. So when we have friends that are going through this, or if we're going through this ourselves, that we can go to the scriptures and we can see God knows exactly what I'm going through. Matter of fact, he's put it in print, you know, and we can relate to these things. So let's look at this downcast soul. He starts out in verse 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You guys know that chorus, as the deer pants for the water, right? That is like the most out-of-context song I think that was ever created. And I don't mean any <laughs> criticism for the person that wrote that song. But it's sort of this, you know, singy-songy type you know, song that is just sort of like, you know, I just desire the Lord. I just want to be in his presence. Life is good. I just want to be with Jesus. But this is written during deep, dark times, uh, dark hours in a person's life. It's a, it's a very weighty thing. This was a person that was removed from the temple, um, not like kicked out, but just physically not close to the temple. Uh, and so the psalmist has a passion to be refreshed by an intimate experience of the Lord's presence. He just wants to be back in the tabernacle. He just wants to be back in the temple. You know, to be in the presence of the Lord. The psalmist feels far from God and, and that God is absent from him. And the sense you get from here is that this is for a prolonged period of time, you know, that, that he is away. Now, he... he he knows that God is not entirely absent, you know? And the reason I say that is because the psalmist is praying to God. So he knows that God is there with him, but the psalmist is expressing that he feels that God is absent, you know, that he's not there. While he knows it in his head, he doesn't necessarily believe it um, in his heart. And, and so his, he sees in his heart, his, uh, he feels that God is absent and his life has grown dry spiritually. So the psalmist paints a picture of this spiritual dryness. And he does it as a deer panting for water. Now, you know, we're in Kansas. We've we got a state of hunters, right? So whenever we think of a deer panting for water, we think of a deer that we've been chasing to hunt. And he stopped to get a drink of water. And that's oftentimes how this is portrayed. But, but I think as you look at the text, the psalmist seems to have had in mind sort of a slower agony of a deer that is in the midst of a drought. That, that a deer that uh, is looking for water but can't find it. And, and one of the reasons why I say that is, one, Israel was a very dry country. You know, it's not like um, some of the northern states in the United States where there's lakes everywhere. But instead, it was a very dry land, and oftentimes water was scarce. But also, in Joel chapter 1, verse 20, Joel chapter 1, verse 20, another text you can look at later is Jeremiah 14, 1 through 6. Jeremiah 14, 1 through 6. But Joel says, Even the beast of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. You see, a deer panting for water like this is, isn't just merely thirsty. A deer panting like this is on the verge of death. And, and, and this is a vivid image of how we can sometimes feel 
in our walk with God. And most likely, as I said, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced those times when, when God, who is our life, has felt very distant. And we have gone to God to be refreshed. And he's nowhere to be found, or so it seems like to us. And, and to make matters worse, we read in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Do you, do you see that? That the psalmist is being tormented here. He's both being tormented within himself. My, my tears have been my food day and night. There's this anguish in his soul, this despair that is there. But there's also this torment from outside of himself. As people are mocking him, as they are ridiculing him. Uh, here he is spiritually dry and he's struggling and rather than having the congregation of God's people to come around him he has nothing but people who are mocking him and if you've not experienced that um, I'm sure one day you will when those who are watching you those who are unbelievers who say things to you like well that religion thing just doesn't seem to be working too well for you now does it or you know well, where's your God now as you go through these difficult circumstances? Or, or where's your God when you need Him? And, and they're, they're saying these things to you and you're, you're listening to this. And on, on, on top of all this, the psalmist remembers the time when he was able not only to worship God, but to lead God's people into worship, to, to worship God with His people, to have that, that Christian fellowship to, to, in verse 4 to come before the Lord uh, to be with God's people and to worship Him. You see, the psalmist was remembering better days. Now, there's a proper use of remembering, and we talked about that in Sunday school a little bit today. I think it's just neat to see how the Lord sort of overlaps these things oftentimes in the teaching of the church. But there's a proper use of memory in times when we are depressed. Remembering God's past acts as an encouragement to believe that God will act again can be a very good thing. And that's what we were talking about in Sunday school. But we can also, we can feel sorry for ourselves whenever we remember the good old days, right? Oftentimes we think about the good old days and we remember life a certain way. Um, it may not be exactly the way life happened, but you know, because oftentimes as we think back at the good old days, we only remember the good things. We don't remember all the other things that go with that. And um, sometimes remembering can encourage us, but sometimes it can be something that, that breeds discontentment and grumbling in our souls. Now, in this first stanza of this poem, the psalmist remembers the former days of the temple and is oppressed by the memory of that rather than finding hope. So here's someone who's dry spiritually, but there, he's not only dry, but he's also drowning in verses 6 through 11. We see the psalmist going from spiritual dryness to drowning. His circumstances seem to be overwhelming him. Look at verse 7. And, and as he's thinking about these things, and as he's over being overwhelmed, we read in verse 6 that he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of, Mount, uh, and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. So here he is in the north of Jerusalem, at Mount Hermon, removed from Jerusalem, removed from the mountain of God, cut off from those who worship the Lord. And, and do you see how this can aggravate spiritual discouragement 
or depression by being separated from God's people. You know, as Americans, uh, especially in the Midwest, I think we're prone to think that we can make it on our own, right? That's sort of that rugged individualism. I mean, that's sort of American trait, you know, completely. But I, I see the farther I move west, the more I think I see that. Because you need sort of that pioneer-type thinking if you're going to make it in, in the new land, right? Uh, and we oftentimes think, I can have a good spiritual life with God all by myself. Is oftentimes the way that we think. As a matter of fact, when, when people get discouraged, they oftentimes withdraw into themselves and they try to figure things out for themselves. And it seems like the more discouraged, the more depressed they get, the more they move inward. But God reminds us that what we naturally want is opposite of what we really need. That what we need is to be with God and to be with His people. And while the, the psalmist continues to struggle, we see in verse 10 that his adversaries continue to taunt him. So it doesn't just mention that once, but it mentions it a couple of times, that these enemies from without are taunting him. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 10 that it's a deadly wound in my bones. It's something that deeply affects me. These are, these are people who live around the psalmist who are, you know, sort of, saying, so where is God when the chips are down? And we don't know who they are exactly. Were they family members? Were they, um, you know, neighbors? I don't know. It doesn't really tell us. But, but we see here in a sense in which the psalmist begins to believe the voices of doubt that are um, within him and without him. Look at verse 9. And, uh, it says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? So you, so you see there those questions and maybe even questions of doubt. But note that the psalmist has not given in completely. I hope you see this, brothers and sisters, that here is someone who is struggling in their faith. They're not just giving over to depression or discouragement or anxiety. They, they are wrestling. Um, so he says here at the beginning of this verse, God is his rock. That's a good thing. He recognizes that. But he's also asking, why have you forgotten me? It seems that God is ignoring his plight. And he knows that God is almighty. He's not doubting that. But the question he seems to be wrestling with is, is if God is almighty and I am his child, then why am I hurting so much? Why am I experiencing such difficulty? Why do my circumstances go on prolonged? For such an extended amount of time. God, where are you? And there are times in our lives when we feel like that psalmist. Where, where we can't go any farther. We are just drowning in our circumstances. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You can just imagine whoever this is standing in Mount Hermon and he's watching the waterfalls come down and, and flowing down into the rivers and seeing the power of the water as it's crashing against the rocks and feeling like that's exactly what describes my life. Uh, water is a powerful force. And, and if you don't believe me, let me just ask you this. Have you ever experienced the sensation of being held under water by someone? Maybe you're a younger sibling, 
you know? I don't know. And you had an older sibling that, you know, was like holding you underwater when you was a little kid. And it's actually, it scarred you to this day, right? Anyway, all you know is you just want to breathe, okay? When you're held underwater, you're just thinking one thing, I need air, I need air. But you just want to get your head above the water so that you can get that gulf of air. Uh, I, I understand a little bit how that feels. I, when I was in college, I took a class on kayaking, and uh, there was a, the class was getting in the river, and shortly after you get in the river, you, you just went over this m sort of mini waterfall, you know, maybe four or five feet is all, and you go over that. And so I was the last person to go, and there was two girls in front of me, and the first one went over the waterfall, she disappeared. We waited for a few minutes, the next girl went, she went over the waterfall, I waited for a few minutes, and then I went. But as I got up to the edge of the waterfall, I looked down and I saw that the two girls were trapped at the bottom of the waterfall. And so, but I couldn't stop. I was coming and I hit them and it busted them loose. So, so they got to be set free and they went on down the river. But when I hit them, it caused my kayak to turn upside down. But the power of the water kept me trapped upside down. I took my paddle to try to sweep and get it turned over. I just couldn't do it. And, and I'd get almost up, I'd get a little gulp of air and I'd go back down. And, you know, and so I went to grab this, the string for my skirt on my kayak and jerk it out so I could swim out. And there's this one skirt of all the skirts uh, in, that the school owned where the cord on the skirt was like that long. And guess which one I had. And I couldn't find the cord to, to pull the skirt off. And I seriously, I remember thinking, Lord Jesus, I'm coming to be with you now. I'm going to drown right here in this river. And just then my hand hit that cord and I jerked out. And of course, I made it. But you know, you can feel that. It's, it's scary. And it, it's like that, brothers and sisters. We're, we're in those times of depression and discouragement that we just feel like the waves keep crashing upon us. And the language in verse 7 is really the language of Jonah when he gets thrown over the ship. Remember in Jonah chapter 2? And he's sinking, right? He's drowning with, the, with that sense that he's moving farther and farther and farther away from God. He is going down into Sheol. He's going down to the place of the dead. He was like me. Yahweh, I'm now coming to be with you. You know? But it was then that God sent the fish, not as a punishment, but as Jonah's deliverance. And likewise, when we are spiritually drowning, you don't know when God is going to deliver you. But oftentimes it feels like that's never coming. And this psalmist doesn't seem to experience that yet. But then he goes on to talk about not only being dry and, and, and uh, also drowning, but also being disheartened in chapter 43. Uh, he's... Because of the oppression of his enemy in verse 2. The, and the oppression, like I said, is, is not like an attack, a physical attack or anything. It's more like a, a taunting uh, or mocking the psalmist. And most of us could relate to that. You know, it's not unusual uh, for those who truly live for the Lord Jesus Christ to be unjustly accused and attacked and slandered by those that are closest to us. It may be at work where you're at. It may be from your neighbors. It may be if you have unsaved family members. It may come from them. 
But didn't Jesus say that that would happen? John 15, 19. Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's so disheartening to be wrongfully and maliciously treated by other people, isn't it? Of course, there's many other causes for depression, not just what's in this psalm, but, but I want you to see here, God understands what we're going through when we go through those times of discouragement and depression. But, but let us consider if, if discouragement and worry and depression are part of the Christian experience, then we need to ask, what are the cures? Now, first of all, let me just say this. There are no cures. In one sense. At least there's no easy cure. There's no fast cure. I'm not going to give you three steps. Just apply these things and all your depression will go away. It's really more a sense of there are three things the Lord is teaching us to do when we face those spiritual discouragements in our lives. And, and these are things that we need to consider as we look upward to Him. First, before I get to that, let me just ask you this. I'm going to play a chase here this morning ask you a question. What do you not see in the Psalms? What do you not see in, in these Psalms? And I would suggest to you, while there might be a number of answers, that there's no mention of the psalmist's sin. There's no mention of his sin. And I, that's important for us to consider because it's not uncommon when we see someone who is discouraged or even depressed to assume that there's some unconfessed sin in their life, right? Aren't we like that? Um, but, but I want us to see in this text that spiritual depression is not necessarily because of sin. Uh, though sometimes it could be because of sin, these psalms are reminding us that sometimes it's not because of sin. Um, a case in point is Job. His friends assumed that there must be something wrong in his life for him to suffer as he's suffering. And so they came up with all these things. But God ended up rebuking them in the end. Uh, in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what, did, what does he say? He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. See the, the anguish in Christ as he prays to his Father. And yet Jesus is sinlessly perfect. And so it's not necessarily because of sin. And I, I want to drive this point home so that when you talk to people who are discouraged or depressed, that you don't uh, start by saying things like, well, are you having your quiet time? Uh, tell me, what's your prayer life like? You know, are, are you truly believing that God can deliver you? And, and it's like we keep asking these questions in their lives because we're just trying to find something that's wrong that we can fix. Or that we can tie it to some sin and they can just confess that sin and then everything will be okay. Brothers and sisters, as we see from Job and other places, there are oftentimes things that the Lord is doing in those times in our lives that, that go very deep as He is truly doing a mighty work in us. And so we need to understand that people get depressed as Christians even apart from any sin in their life. But also I want you to know this because I want you to preach it to yourself. 
You know, because isn't it common for us as Christians as we get in those times in our lives and we're struggling and we're in those deep hours, that dark hours, that, that we begin to say, wow, am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? And we're, we're really struggling with those things. Don't assume that because you're depressed that you're living in sin. Now, here again, search your heart. If there is sin, confess that sin. Repent of that sin. Confess it. Ask the Lord to forgive you, and He will. But, but it's not always because of sin. So, so that being the case, what do we do? Well, do what the psalmist does. First of all, he's honest with himself and with God. He's honest with himself and God. We, we see the psalmist brings his depression out in the open. Man, I, I don't have time. Let me just mention a few verses. Uh, 42, verses 1 through 3. You know, as a deer pants for the flowing water, so pants my soul for you. Oh my God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the God? My tears have been my food day and night. Uh, 42, verses 6 and 7. My soul is cast down within me. Deep calls to deep as the roar of the waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Uh, 43, verses 1 and 2. Vindicate me, O God, and de defend my cause against an ungodly people for the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression? You see, he prays to God. He shares the anguish of his soul. And, and maybe in those times, all you can do is to pray and say, God, I am discouraged. Or God, I am depressed. And if that's all you can do, then pray that. Turn your focus to the Lord in honest prayer. And when you don't feel like you can worship or pray or read your Bible, do it anyway. We don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. That brings me to our second point. In those times, preach to yourself. Make yourself think rightly. Focus on things that are true. Uh, don't allow your feelings to control your response to circumstances. You, you've heard me say a million times, and you can probably quote this with me, right? Right thinking leads to right actions, which results in right feelings. Right thinking leads to right actions, which results in right feelings. But when we get our feelings at the top of the list, then it sends us haywire and wacko. We have to, first of all, have right thinking. But often in our discouragement and our worry, our feelings are seeking to control how we live. We must thank God's thoughts after him as he's revealed in his word. Now, notice in the second and the third stanzas, it's true in the first one too, but especially in verses 6 to 11 and then chapter 43, the psalmist reminds himself of what he knows is true. Even as he's wrestling, you can see, like I said, he's going back and forth. He sees some things that are true, and then he's asking questions, and some of them are questions of doubt. But he says in verse 9, I say to God, my rock. And then he says in chapter 43, verse 2, that God is not only his rock, but the God, he is the God in whom he takes refuge. He's, he's saying those things that are true. God is my strong tower, the righteous run to him, and are safe, Proverbs 18.10. And Martin Lloyd-Jones made a, a really big deal about this point, stressing that we need to talk to ourselves rather than allowing our circumstances to talk to us. And oftentimes, too, our self will talk to us and, and seek to lead us astray. 
and, and usually it's coming out of our emotions. Uh, you see, it's a, it's a case of the mind speaking to the emotions rather than the emotions dictating to the mind. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and he, he puts it this way. He says, you have to take yourself in hand. Now just, just imagine this. You've got to take yourself in hand and you have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. What he's saying is, just preach to yourself the truth of what God has told us. You see, clear thinking reminds the psalmist that in the good old days, the Lord's care was regular uh, and a daily practice. He forced himself to think by way of remembrance, as we talked about in Sunday school. Remembering the good things that the Lord has done. And so he reasons that God's light and God's truth could be his guide. In verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And that brings us to our, our third point, And that is, put your hope in God. In those times, put your hope in God. You know, having made yourself to think rightly. And here again, hear me, brothers and sisters, hear me. This won't be where you set yourself down and you just say, okay, Rick, this is what God's Word says. This is true. And I go, okay, that's good. I'm good. It's not going to be like that. There's going to be this struggle that you see with the psalmist. He's focusing on what God's Word said. But his, his mind is feeding lies into him. There are those from outside of him that's feeding lies. And he's hearing these things and he's wrestling with those things. And he's listening to God's Word. And there's this turmoil, but he's... he's He's setting his focus upon his rock in the midst of that. And that's what will happen. And, and, and he sets about pulling himself together, which is what is repeated in, in the different refrains. Look at Psalm 43, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. What's he say? For I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. He knows that in that moment, he needs to address his soul. He needs to talk to himself. He needs to remind himself that there is no hope apart from God. But one day, he shall again praise him. Now, why is that so important? Because when you are in those dark hours, brothers and sisters, when you are in the valley, it appears like you will always be in the valley that you will never leave those dark times, that life will never be any different. And you need to remind yourself, no, there is hope. There will be a day when I will praise the Lord. It may not be today, but there will be a day, and there is hope. I have a dear friend by the name of Charles Biggs. He's a pastor uh, in Virginia. And uh, he posted on Facebook very conveniently, so I could use it as an illustration of my sermon today, I guess. He said, remember this truth today. He said, pride wants to talk about you. Pride wants to talk about you. So as you think about the voices in your head as you're going through those difficult times, our pride wants to, our pride wants to do things like this. It wants to justify us having a pity party. 
Pride wants to say, oh, poor me. Look what I'm going through. Look at these things that I'm suffering. And is it true that you're suffering those things? Yes. But pride makes it think that it's all about you and all about what you're going through. But then he goes on and he said, fear wants to talk about others and your circumstances. You see, that's what fear focuses on. It focuses on what other people are saying and, or what they're doing to you or what they're not doing for you. And, and it wants to focus on that or upon the circumstances of your life. And so there's a sense in which you're being overwhelmed by these things as, as fear speaks to you. But then Pastor Biggs goes on, he says this, he goes, faith wants to talk about Jesus, right? Faith wants to talk about Jesus Christ and his love for you. So fix your faith on his promises. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to go to passages like 2 Corinthians 9, 8. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Our God is able to make all grace appear, excuse me, all grace abound to you, that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's a lot of all, isn't it? But that's how great our God is. And it may be, that it, when you're in those times of discouragement, that you read that and you're like, yeah, I don't see it. But you also have hope to know that one day you will see it. And as you're in the midst of that, you need to ask yourself, why are you downcast? And you need to ask yourself to give you a rational answer for why you're downcast. Remind yourself that hope means a patient but expectant waiting for God to act. A, a, a patient but expectant waiting for God to act. In other words, he's, it doesn't appear that he's acting today, but I know that he will, and I'm waiting for that. One of the verses in, in Peter's epistles that, that means so much to me as a Christian as I think about suffering and hardships and difficulties that we go through is that it talks about how Jesus, when he was suffering on the cross for us, it says that he entrusted himself to the Father. You see, when he was going through those difficult times, what enabled him to wait patiently and expectantly was he knew that what God was doing was right and perfect, and he could give himself to that. He could give himself to his Father. He, he knew that what his Father was doing was good, and he could rest in that. Ed Welch says, depression cannot see hope. And so it claims that hope is absent and that it's wrong. Right? That's what depression does. It like squelches every sense of hope within your body. He says, but Jesus has come and has conquered by facing death and then rising from the dead. By faith, we join him in that resurrection. We are people who can look ahead with hope, brothers and sisters. We can look ahead to hope. So tell yourself that your day of praise will certainly come. Though not in your timing, it will be in God's timing. And so this morning I just want to close by asking you this. In, in 43 verse 4, he, he refers to God as being his exceeding joy. Is God your exceeding joy today? If not, then don't rest until he is. 
You see, even in those times of discouragement and worry and anxiety and depression, um, what we need is not happiness, nor do what we need is relief from pain, but what we need is our God. What we need to do is to rest in who God is, to thirst after God. So rouse yourself to seek Him as your only source of hope and help Him and, and your only hope, no matter how despairing the circumstances are. Hope in God. You shall again praise Him. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning as we meditate upon God's Word. Thank you so much that you have graciously given to the church a, a, a song to sing about uh, what to do in those times of discouragement and depression. Uh, God, we thank you for the honesty that we can have to come to you in prayer and pour out our, our hearts to you. Lord, we thank you that you have given us not only your word, but you have given us your spirit as well to remind us uh, what is truly right and what is true especially in those times of discouragement when our compass gets out of whack and we can't tell what true north is and, and we just have all this influence, all these voices that are speaking into our lives. We need you, O oh God, to direct us in those times and to remind us that you and you alone are our hope and that we can wait expectantly and patiently for you until the time when you act. Oh God, I want to pray. For any that are here today that are struggling with such discouragement. Uh, Lord, that you, these words may be encouraging the, to them. They may turn their focus to you. But Lord, help us this week as well. Maybe as we struggle with this or as we encounter someone else that does. Lord, help us not to just jump to the upward look. But Lord, help us first of all to take the person to the, down, the downcast. To, for them to see that you understand. And that, God, that you give us hope in the midst of such circumstances. Oh, Lord, but I especially pray for those this morning that don't know you, that really have no hope. All they have is themselves. What a, what a miserable existence that can be. And so I pray for them, Lord, that they may see that the only hope truly is in God himself. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. <coughs>